0: Stork Talks
1: Welcome to Stork Talks with Zoe and Tom The Storks
2: have been a part of life in The Hague for centuries Have you spotted one yet?
1: Each week, Stork Talks delves into a range of stories, news and anecdotes.
2: And for the next hour, we'll take you under our wings as we discover the city of peace and justice.
1: This is truly a special place to live and we invite you to tune in and discover it with us each Thursday between 8 and 9 p.m. on 92.0 Den Haag FM.
2: As always, this talk of the week, and this week Zoe and I spent some time delving into the fascinating but complicated history of the Papua New Guinea, the former Dutch Indies, the reason we were preparing to interview the spokesperson of the Free West Papaya independence campaign.
1: Indeed, Tom, I met up with Raki App earlier in the week, and we had a fascinating conversation about this deeply complex and conveniently forgotten chapter of history. Now, as a longtime resident of The Hague, Raki explained to me that his aim is simply to raise awareness, particularly here in the city of peace and justice, of the plight of his people. And I hope this interview helps to do just that.
0: Thank you. Thank um... For those who don't know where West Papua is on the world map, um, it is indeed the western half of the island of New Guinea, right above Australia. And um, I think it belonged for more than 300 years uh, to the Kingdom of the Netherlands under the name uh, Netherlands Indies. And after the independence of Indonesia in 1949, West Papua got a a other status which which was called uh, the Netherlands New Guineas. And the Netherlands prepared the West Papuans towards uh, independence. Um, by realizing a Papuan Voluntary corps, which is a kind of army, they installed a first government, they gave them an, a national flag in 1961, but a year later, in 1962, the Dutch were forced under huge international pressure by the United States in front, and they signed an agreement uh, with Indonesia in the headquarters of uh, the United Nations in New York without the consultation of any West Papuans, the future was decided uh, between the Netherlands and Indonesia. And since then, West Papua was colonized by another colonizer, which we know as Indonesia. And since then, the killings and intimidations of indigenous West Papuans started. And that is the way I lost my father, was an anthropologist. And nowadays, we are campaigning about what is happening there.
1: Okay, yes. So you were in fact born in West Papua, but then you came here as a very young baby. And you have now grown up in the Netherlands and you are indeed a resident of the Hague. Mm. But this is clearly still a part of your heritage that is that is of, of, of concern to you and which you would like to, to change. So at the moment, um, you're also, your campaign is about peaceful protest. And you explained to me earlier that you specifically campaigning in countries like the Netherlands to raise awareness simply because many people, including myself, knew nothing about this. Mm-hmm. What is your ultimate goal then here in the Netherlands with this campaign?
0: I think... Our ultimate goal in the Netherlands is to raise so much awareness that people in the Netherlands will force their government to take their more responsibility about finishing a decolonization process of former Dutch New Guinea and, and put West Papua back on the decolonization list and give them the right to self-determination. That would be our goal.
1: Now, as you say, the Netherlands does have a part in this history because it was a colonizer of that part of the world for hun- literally hundreds of years. And yet, as you also explained to me, when you go around and you speak at schools here and you even speak to history teachers here, there seems to be a bit of a blank. Um, how, how, could, how do you explain that?
0: Yeah, this, this is a really interesting part. And since I actually started to travel around, around the country since, since three years ago, I was asked to give guest lectures at high schools and universities, and I was actually stumped that uh, even history teachers and university teachers didn't know anything about what is happening in West Papua. And I think this is exactly the problem within institutions, right? If history teachers aren't aware about their own our shared history, I should say, how can students know about what is happening in West Papua and that it is a former colony? So I think the most important thing for me as a campaign is really bringing back our shared history into the Dutch history curriculum. I think that's the biggest challenge.
1: Now... We also, there's a sort of a darker side even than this, in that your campaign is uh, clearly a peaceful campaign. It's about raising awareness. But on the ground in West Papua, there are reports or some accusations of genocide on the part of Indonesia. You also mentioned that the number of native um, people from West Papua have decreased significantly over the years for a variety of reasons. And in return, there has been guerrilla warfare as well as the West Papuans fight to to defend themselves. How do you see this problem and what are your hopes for how it might be resolved?
0: Yeah, the dynamics uh, and the complexity is is very high. But at the same time, I'm very optimistic. Uh, Indeed, the circumstances looking at estimations of NGOs that more than 500,000 indigenous West Papuans have been victim since the transfer from the Netherlands to Indonesia and that West Papuans have become a minority in the last 60 years due to the uh, transmigration policy orchestrated by the Indonesian government. So the numbers are really worrying uh, because if nothing will change, we are heading toward an extinction. So what we see now in West Papua is that this civil society is really moving. Students are, uh, you know, building mobilizations. And yes, we have also a rebellion movement in West Papua who use firearms to protect themselves. But um, from, as far as I know, they use uh, violence in the use of self-defense when they're being confronted by Indonesian soldiers. And we are allowing, hoping that UN observers will enter West Papua so they can see what is happening there. And from our point of view, it is Indonesia who is blocking, uh, foreign journalists who is blocking UN observer teams. So probably they have something to hide. But we are really optimistic seeing that the global support in the Pacific region the Pacific Island Forum have unanimously uh called for a UN uh, human rights fact-finding mission to West Papua this year supported by 97 other countries within the African and Caribbean state parties. So this is the optimism and the momentum uh, which give the West Papuans a lot of confidence and we got support from religious leaders from local politicians from students women women leaders so this is really a a moment of hope even with the, the situation is very difficult.
1: Absolutely. Are you hoping that the Dutch government will, will join in that that request?
0: Yes. The, my, my, my main goal here in the Netherlands as citizen of The Hague, uh, the so-called uh, capital, international capital of peace and justice, I'm holding the Dutch government and other politicians here in the Dutch parliament accountable for their moral responsibility they should take on West Papua. As former soldiers served in the Dutch army, they are saying that they are fighting for peace and justice in Afghanistan. How is it possible that they are looking away from the promised freedom uh, they, they promised West Papua and say, former Dutch Union?
1: Raki, thank you so much for joining us today on Stalk Talks. Such a powerful statement
2: that he makes, um, not, not just, he, he literally says, I hold the Dutch government accountable.
1: Absolutely, um, Tom. He's not mincing his words.
2: No, and it, it, exactly. But one thing I wanted to clarify, because, I mean, we delved into this, of course, but like the territory that he's talking, talking about is, of course, the, the western half of the island of New Guinea. And it's an island 200 kilometers north of Australia.
1: Indeed, yes. So it is it is apparently the second largest island in the world and it's called West Papa and that's literally on the western half, but that incorporates two provinces which are provinces of Indonesia at the moment. And one of these is West Papa and the other is simply Papa. So it it does get a little confusing. But this region is very rich in natural resources. In fact, it has the largest gold mine in the world and the second largest copper mine.
2: So it's really an economic issue, what they're facing. Well,
1: I I mean, I'm not an expert, Tom, as you know, but uh, it seems to me that economic interests have definitely played a role in this narrative. West Papa is one of the least developed provinces in Indonesia in Despite of its natural wealth the native people are therefore accusing the Indonesian government of simply keeping this wealth for themselves rather than reinvesting it in that region.
2: But I think an interesting thing is, that's also some of the articles that that we looked at, is basically say, well, things are changing slowly, but but for the better.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think as we heard, Raki sounds quite positive, which is is good to hear. But it's also worth noting that in 2001, the so-called special autonomy law is set to expire. Now, this autonomy law was supposed to give Papa and West Papa provinces a larger share of revenue from their own natural resources and greater political autonomy, but many West Papans argue that this has not happened and therefore they are now demanding independence, pure and simple. Mm-hmm. So for, for more information, uh, the the website? Absolutely. We will be posting some links on our Facebook page and on our Instagram. So if you are interested in following this up or perhaps you want to get in touch with Raki, that might be of interest for schools perhaps. Fantastic. No, thank you so much for, for bringing this talk of the week to, uh, to the radio this time. Yeah. Now, last week we started a new theme of peace and protest. We began our month-long exploration by speaking with Troni Ngati of the Hague Peace Projects, and this week we're continuing our exploration of peace and protest with a discussion on peaceful protest.
2: Protest is defined as a complaint, objection or, objection or display of unwilling, unusually, to an idea or course of action. So. Logically speaking, peaceful protest should be a peaceful way of displaying the aforementioned objection. But in our preparation for this episode, we found out that there is a significant gray area in both the definition and execution of peaceful protest.
1: Absolutely, Tom. Now, the Hong Kong protests, for example, started very peacefully, and I can attest to that personally because I was there to witness the so-called umbrella revolution in 2014, when hundreds of students sat peacefully doing their homework in the streets and shopping areas in protest uh, at uh, Chinese interference. But um, the pro-democracy protests have now evolved into something a little less peaceful.
2: Exactly. And that's why we decided to invite uh, Dr. Casper Witz uh, to aid us in our second stop along our month-long exploration of peace and protest. Casper is a lecturer at Leiden University and focuses on post-war diplomatic and international history in East Asia with a special interest in the development of Chinese and Japanese foreign policy and uh, Sino-Japanese relations in this period. On top of that, he's a spokesperson for the peaceful protest movement of Extinction Rebellion. And he's joining us this evening on the phone now to discuss the issue of peaceful protest.
1: Welcome Casper. Okay, thank you very much. Good evening. <laughs> Good evening. Casper. perhaps we can start with the Hong Kong protest movement. It has been going for a while now and has indeed captured the attention of the world. Do you, would you say the Hong Kong protests are a good example of the power of peaceful protest? Uh,
3: yes, uh, but at the same time also, I'm afraid to say probably the limitations of peaceful mm. protest uh, in the context of a non-democratic uh, regime. Because uh, as you as you already uh, mentioned, the protests, especially in 2013, 2014, mm-hmm. were in many ways very heartwarming, you know, yes. where a lot of... Children taking part and, as you say, doing their homework on the street yeah. while protesting. And the protest movement then was very, very, you know, peaceful and idealistic mm-hmm. and about creating positive change. Mm-hmm. And it was very ex- explicitly a uh, suffragist. So they wanted to have universal suffrage mm-hmm. for the people of Hong Kong. And basically also calling for dialogue, I think, with the authorities, both the local Hong Kong authorities uh, and the authorities in mainland China, in Beijing, and basically to uh, create positive changes in their life. Uh, I'm afraid, though, that uh, the reaction of the government is, is pretty much explains what, what would happen the next uh, years after that, because... Um, As you know, like from uh, 2019 onwards, the protests uh, have taken on a very different, you know, very different tone.
1: Well, I mean, this is the problem, isn't it, Casper? When you um, when your peaceful protest is met with um, some sort of aggression, I don't I guess it's quite difficult to continue to be peaceful.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's easy for us to say, of course, living in The Hague, living in the Netherlands, which is uh, quite a stable uh, country where we basically have uh, the right to protest and there are at least uh, certain limitations on the police's behavior. It's very easy for us to say that all violence is wrong. But I can understand, you know, after years of protesting that um, the people of Hong Kong, while peacefully protesting, were constantly confronted with uh, quite extreme violence from the side of the Hong Kong police, unfortunately. And one of the reasons that... The, as you mentioned, the uh, umbrella revolution or the umbrella movement is called the umbrella movement is because um, they needed umbrellas to protect themselves from pepper spray and yes. from tear gas, etc.
2: One thing that is that is interesting because um, you sort of touching upon it now is the the definition of sort of what is civil ab- if, disobedience and what is peaceful protest. Because well, I, I presume that for example, the usage of, of tear gas and stuff that is very intense for the for, for the protester, but at the same time, the things the protesters do are also uh, quote unquote against the law or their so how is that difference between peaceful protest and, and civil disobedience?
3: That's true that definitely the Hong Kong protest was a strong element of civil disobedience. So they uh, engaged in occupying uh, squares and streets and, and, and whatnot. Um, but I think um, in terms of the reaction of the authorities, this was not so much what triggered the violence. I think the violence was quite indiscriminate. So also when people engaged in peaceful protests that were not illegal, violence. the level of violence would not necessarily change. Mm. So. I think the problem wasn't so much the civil uh, disobedience that triggered aggressive reaction from the state, uh, but it was uh, pretty much what they were asking for. That that was dangerous, that so unif- which was universal suffrage. So in the Hong Kong case, uh, they did resort to civil disobedience simply out of desperation, I think. They saw no other way. Um, but for the uh, government, that was just ex- an extra excuse to to crack down on the protest.
2: Well, I, I think uh, you touch upon it earlier when we had the, the conversation before before in our live. And you said there there was a different movement that was a great example of, of uh, a peaceful protest and, and civil disobedience, which was the the Taiwanese sunflower movement.
3: Uh, yeah, that's correct. So in the same year, 2014, there was a very large uh, civil dis- disobedience movement in uh, Taiwan, which uh, consisted basically of uh, a large group of students that occupied the legislature so basically the national parliament of Taiwan and this was also in reaction to uh, certain things their government was doing that had to do with um, sort of an endangered autonomy of the island nation of Taiwan so they felt that uh, because of the local government's actions uh, the mainland Chinese get too much uh, power on the island because of economic treaties and those kind of things so young people basically occupied the entire parliament for uh, for. A couple of weeks. So very, this is very unique, I think, in, in world history, in fact. And this was just the beginning of a very large protest movement, a civil disobedience movement that uh, became so large that it has actually achieved a lot of progressive change in Taiwan itself.
1: So just to be clear then, Kasper, what would you say is the main difference between the Hong Kong protests and the Taiwanese, because we see them starting in a similar way, but they've clearly, they're going in very different directions.
3: Yeah, that's a very crucial question, I think. And I think uh, this question can teach us a lot about generally, you know, the, the recent history in East Asia, mm-hmm. um, but also the need for democratization in those places. Because uh, in Taiwan, despite all the problems uh, that Taiwan faced, there was still a relatively robust uh, democratic system in place uh, in which a lot of these concerns could be channeled you know right. uh, even though you know there was a pol- lot of polarization and uh, anger on, on different sides you could see that basically democracy was working because the concerns of the protesters could be channeled into in, into a democratic direction mm. and that that's exactly what's missing in Hong Kong because yeah. with the rule of the mainland Chinese in Hong Kong even though Hong Kong has a certain amount of autonomy yeah. uh, the way that uh, Beijing exercises its power in Hong Kong means that they cannot allow People of Hong Kong to have universal suffrage to actually vote uh, for their own leaders, even locally. So, the fact that the desire for change of the Hong Kong people cannot be chale- uh, channeled into a, uh, a democratic uh, direction means that, uh, or ha- yeah, means that very very slowly these type of protests get out of hand because there's simply no way to resolve
1: this issue. No. I mean, do you think perhaps does that mean there's a sell-by date for peaceful protests, or perhaps if the Chinese Communist Party had allowed a little bit more leeway? for the Hong Kongers my things have been better that way in terms of peace, maintaining peace and order? I
3: think um, the idea of the Chinese government having more of a listening ear, you know, to the people mm. of Hong Kong, I think for many years this, was, this is, is what the people of Hong Kong were hoping for mm. and it is uh, to their immense frustration that the government kept ignoring their uh, their concerns and therefore I think it's a good way to put it, like there was a sell-by date for this kind of, uh, this kind of protest in the mm. sense that uh, when the concerns of the people that they keep uh, voicing in a peaceful way, if you keep ignoring those year after year after year, not only that, but actually you keep violently attacking the people, protesting, and then it does seem that people lose hope with peaceful protests, and this has happened with a minority of protesters in Hong Kong, that has to be emphasized. What we're seeing now, yeah, there is violence uh, on the side of the protesters in Hong Kong, but this is a minority. You know, one can't help but understand where this comes from, because their concerns uh, simply they can't resolve them in a democratic a democratic way. So yeah, maybe there is a side by day for peaceful
2: Then, I mean, one thing I really like that you point out, Casper, is sort of the philosophy is that if people start to lose belief in a political system, that's the moment they start to well uh, find alternative ways to express their opinion or try to instigate change. And speaking of change, uh, right after this little musical break, we're going to continue further talking about uh, some of the, well, the, the pragmatic and the things that you do within Extinction Rebellion to create change. But when we asked you for a song that would be related to this topic, uh, you said that you had a song that would be both suitable and very representative for the topic that we were talking about.
3: It's a song called "Island Sunrise." So this is a uh, by the Taiwanese uh, punk rock band uh, called Fire X, and this is sort of the. Uh, ver- very famous protest song for the people of Taiwan that's connected to the Sunflower Revolution or the Sunflower Movement. And uh, this is a band that's very politically engaged. And uh, basically, all young people in Taiwan love this song and and associate it with their uh, desires for progressive change. So it is uh, in the local language, which is a Chinese language, but not Mandarin Chinese. And uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool to introduce this on the uh, local radio. Absolutely.
2: Well, absolutely. Um, We may not be able to listen to the full song, but of course, we'll, we'll listen the full song, but uh, here is indeed uh, Fire X by Island Sunrise. And we'll be right back after this to discuss this topic further with Casper. <laughs>
1: Vave
2: bit sorry for cutting it short. Like in, in I some, agree. In I was just getting yeah. into it,
1: Tom. It reminded me of my days in Hong Kong. Before the break, we we started a conversation with Dr. Kaspar Witz on peaceful protest with examples uh, of Hong Kong and Taiwan, the Taiwanese sunflower movement. And now we're going to continue by taking a look at something a little closer to home, the Extinction Rebellion Movement. How do these distinctions translate to an organization like the Extinction Rebellion Movement here in The Hague or in the UK? Casper?
3: Uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, peaceful protest is something that's very central to a movement like Extinction Rebellion or, for example, Fridays for Future. So mm. with the um, high school student protests that we have seen over the last year, uh, two years, especially centered around Greta Thunberg, of yes. course, I think even though such peaceful protests, should uh, continue, like to take it a bit uh, one step further and go into the sort of the practicing this type of civil disobedience that Extinction Rebellion does, is generally seen by the movement as, you know, something that... They, they don't really have a choice anymore because uh, it seems like these very large student, student strikes and those type of movements, they should continue. They are necessary. But let's be honest, we, we just see one uh, large climate summit after the other failing. And we see the people in power failing to take the necessary steps to counter the uh, disastrous effect of climate change. Uh, so I think among young people today, there is a growing sense. The general political process that we have grown up with and that we uh, generally support is not working anymore. Our democratic leaders simply don't seem to be able and willing to take the steps that are necessary to counter this problem. So that's why I think we now see a rise in uh, the use of civil disobedience in the climate movement.
1: Okay, but do you think that then justifies a sort of a move away from purely peaceful protests, given that, you know, we are living in democracies?
3: Uh, Well, let's let's get one thing very clear, is that I'm I'm purely talking about peaceful civil disobedience, Mm -hmm. right? A distinction between peaceful protest and civil disobedience, I don't don't think that's a correct uh, distinction, because Mm -hmm. uh, civil disobedience is a part of peaceful protest. Uh, The only difference is that civil disobedience uh, makes use of a certain type of disruptive action that Basically disrupt the status quo, disrupt the way things are going, because in many ways, business as usual is the problem. So using more disruptive actions, like let's say occupying a intersection mm-hmm. or uh, occupying the uh, entrance of the shell headquarters here in The Hague, mm-hmm. that uh, has always also been done in February. That's civil disobedience, but mm-hmm. we're, we're definitely talking about peaceful. Yeah. Protest, no, uh, peaceful civil yeah, disobedience. Exactly.
2: Yeah. I think that's a good distinction to make because in, indeed that was the question that was burning in my mind as well. So what are these these civil disobedience things, uh, mm. especially from the conversation we just had? Um, mm. so, so to come back to the goal of uh, Extinction Rebellion, um, it has been a, I would say a successful popular protest movement um, and, and simultaneously it has a very clear uh, a, ambition to gain a, a, a sort of s- a, a citizens' assembly that's, that's the end goal of the protest. So could you explain more about this, this end goal?
3: Uh, yeah, that's correct. Um, well, basically, the, uh, the movement has three demands. So the Citizens' Assembly is the third demand, um, but I think it has to be seen in the context of, uh, of three demands. And the first demand is that the government has to start telling the truth about the disastrous consequences of climate change which means that it has to be communicated more clearly that radical change is necessary. So uh, it's not so much that the government denies the science, but it is the case that the government ignores the science. Mm -hmm. And by demanding the government starts telling the truth, we basically say that the government should start actually listening to the scientists and acting on it. And that leads us to the second demand of Extinction Rebellion, which is the government has to strive for a policy of climate neutrality by 2025, which uh, sounds a little bit uh, radical, maybe, but is, again, mostly what scientists are saying is necessary. So that's all that uh, that's all that all Extinction Rebellion is claiming, is follow the science. And then the third demand is to establish a, what's called a citizen's assembly. So the citizen's assembly is... Uh, geared towards uh, achieving this transition towards a more uh, green economy uh, in a way that is just and fair, because we very much feel that the type of transition towards greener economy like if we leave that to the current politicians and then this will inevitably mean that the people who will pay the the highest price for this transition will be the poorest people right i mean that's Mm -hmm. how our political system seems to function function right now unfortunately so we want to sort of counter that by putting a citizens' assembly in charge of the, cli- of the transition towards, towards climate neutrality. And in that way, we want to make sure that it, it is the people that are actually the, the biggest polluters should be paying for the transition. So we're talking about uh, large fossil fuel companies like Shell and uh, other m- big multinationals. We need labor, you name them. And to, to put it very bluntly, also, basically, the rich should pay for the transition and not the poor. We cannot leave that to the current elites that run our society. That's why we need a Citizens' Assembly.
1: Okay. Casper, um, I'm with you on all of that. But if we just sort of zoom out a little and uh, we see that there is a rise in popular... Uh, in some cases, progressive protest movements across Europe. I heard recently from the uh, leader of the Sardine movement, also the Yellow Vests, there's there's a whole bunch. Um, they've all apparently been invited to get involved in the sort of traditional political system. Many of them choose not to. They feel that they can play a stronger role simply as a sort of watchdog or in, in terms of raising awareness. So I think Extinction Rebellion is maybe a little different in that you're suggesting that you do want to get involved in the political system, but you you don't want to join up with any particular political party. Is, is that correct?
3: Uh, yeah, I think that's a good uh, description. I definitely, uh, I mean, uh, no one is saying that, you know, people shouldn't vote or that it's Mm. uh, in any way wrong to to get involved in, let's say, more conventional Mm. politics. Uh, It's, in fact, a very good idea. Uh, But I think uh, as a protest movement, uh, at least Extinction Rebellion considers it more effective to work in the way that they're working now. So Mm. there is a lot of cooperation between other, uh, with other climate activist groups. But I think this type of citizens' assembly idea is a way that uh, the movement is trying to engage with the democratic process without necessarily going in the same like, well-worn trails that mm. the conventional politicians ha- have done, because let's be honest, that hasn't worked.
2: No, I, and I think one of the, the final questions that I'd like to ask you, Casper, uh, is sort of like if people want to find out more information or, or are curious about this topic and, and things that they can do themselves, where can they find that information?
3: Yeah, I think uh, especially if we speak about the context in The Hague, there's always a a lot of things going on in the uh, movement Extinction Rebellion uh, locally, so in the local chapter. Uh, so there, especially in the um, Grand Café Utopie, which is in the Waldeck Piemont there's always a lot of things being organized by not only Extinction Rebellion, but also Fossil Vrij, which is another uh, climate movement uh, very active in The Hague. Mm-hmm. And uh, Extinction Rebellion, uh, almost every two, three weeks, organizes introduction meetings, for example, where you can be introduced to the principles of the movement and also learn more about the science behind uh, the climate problem and also longer lectures specifically if people want to learn more about climate change and what the science is saying. Uh, so I would say um, check for example the Facebook page of Extinction Rebellion at Den Haag so I would suggest uh, people do that.
2: I just want to say thank you so much for joining us tonight, Casper. Thank you for having me. Right after a little musical intervention, we'll continue with the hospitality sector. We're moving into a new topic. Um, Last week, we closed off the topic of the vegetarian cuisine, and this month, we are focusing on fish and seafood. Um, We'll explore a range of different restaurants and ways of eating fish as we enjoy a month of fish-related adventures. And to start off, I interviewed uh, the owner of an award-winning fishmonger. Well, he's an award-winning fishmonger, and he owns uh, a fish store here in The Hague. And his name is Bert, and his store is called Fis the, the simp- as simple as it can be, just fish. And he's located on the frederik Hendriklaan. And of course, one of the first questions that I asked him was, what is FIS Den Haag?
4: Fish is a, a fish store, of course. With a wide range of fish. We go from uh, fried fish to caviar, from smoked fish to whatever you want.
2: And, and what makes it so unique? Why have you chosen to do so many different things at the same time? I think unique is
4: that fish, when we started 15 years ago, we were one of the first fish shops with its own chef in the house. I'm just a fishmonger, simple fishmonger, and I hired a chef. To make the meals
2: I think one thing that is difficult to convey through radio but that is beautiful if you visit the store itself you can see in the the, the, all of the glass, there's so many different varieties of fish what types of fish do you serve
4: you name it we got it we are specialized in meals so we try to uh, upgrade the fish of course we have the, the, the plain fish but I think it's especially in this neighborhood it's important to have nice things When people get home, don't want to cook, just enter the fish shop and we have your meal.
2: So what makes fish such a special ingredient for you? I was born in a
4: fisherman's town and I grew up with fish. I had my own business when I was 70 years old, so it's fish. I am, <laughs> I am fish
2: I am fish I love that quote so you said you make meals um, and you started off that way as well so what what do customers say when they come in and buy the meals here
4: when people enter for the first time this shop they are overwhelmed by the colors by the, the ingredients by everything so that makes it nice for us as well to work in this shop it's it's a total different fish shop than the normal fish shop you can't see it but a normal fish shop is uh, white, blue, red. Our shop is black and yellow. So that makes it different. And the colors in the, in the, uh, from the fishes, the, the, the mills, it's, it's special. And we love our job. That's special.
2: I think that uh, You Love Your Job doesn't just shine through in the meals that you prepare, but also in the award that you've won. Can you tell a bit more about that?
4: It's a couple of years ago. We won gold in the best fish shop uh, uh, in the Netherlands. And that was because we were different than the rest. We uh, gave cooking lessons at that uh, period. Our meals were special, just a special store.
2: Do you have a favorite recipe or favorite preparation method of a a specific type of fish? I love
4: our salmon yakitori. It's a grilled salmon with a sweet sesame sauce. I love it.
2: Are there any recipes that that we can do as well at home that you don't need to be a chef for that that you'd recommend to the the people listening? I think
4: if you ask your fishmonger how to prepare it, uh, it's not too difficult. <laughs> if I can do it, you can do it.
2: If a regular fishmonger can do it, then anybody can. I mean, what would you like the, the, the international, the expat community of The Hague to, to learn about fish or what, what should they know about fish? I think
4: that the most experts know more about fish than the Dutch people. So what should we learn them? Maybe the, the, the special Dutch fishes. Normally, they know more about fish than the dutch people do
2: so if people want to learn more about all the the meals and everything you can you prepare uh, where can they find that information
4: come in just ask we are uh, a walking recipe uh, book
2: oh, a walking recipe book and you're located in the friedrikhendrikland we'll of course put all of the information but the, the website as well what's the the website
4: vvv.fish.denhaek.nl
2: exactly we'll link all of that uh, uh, below and then you can find it there thank you so much for joining me bert you're welcome So what did you think?
1: That was a great interview, Tom. I really, I I like the sound of Bert. He just seems very down to earth. And yeah, I mean, the pictures, I haven't actually stepped into his shop. And I say this with shame because I live very close to the Frederick Henry clan. But um, the pictures I've seen of the shop, uh, it looks amazing. And I think, as you said, it's not just a fish shop. It's sort of a special hybrid. I noticed Bert said that it's not just the uh, red, white and blue. It's black and yellow.
2: But well, what I loved <laughs> is, is you immediately went like, oh, but that that's he just has a different decor but in holland i think bert makes an excellent point because it's a very traditional those colors it's very much like the colors of the flag and the colors if you look even at like herring stands or whatever throughout the city like the pop-up ones they usually have specifically that color scheme right
1: yeah okay so this was a real break with tradition
2: well yes definitely but i think that the biggest break and that's where sort of the hospitality and the food part comes in is really transforming meals not just from being fish that you purchase and sort of going around and and buying the ingredients and making it yourself at home but um, going there to sort of taste and get advice and expertise and really elevate your meal by talking to the person who knows most about it I mean that's what he said is walking recipe book
1: I mean it's it's a great concept because well as we know there's such a range of fish we're not all experts in the field and also to be honest fish are quite difficult to prepare so I, I also liked what he said about you could just pop in and pick up a ready-made healthy meal. You know, if you're tired at the end of the day, sounds good. Yeah,
2: I hope it came through in this short, like, three, four-minute interview. But Bert is such a sparkling individual to sort of walk into the fish shop. And one of the things he said is, I just want to make sure that when people uh, come in, that they are welcomed promptly that they have a hospitable feeling and when they leave that they have an even bigger smile when they leave
1: well he's uh, certainly the interview has inspired me to uh, to stop in fantastic
2: Um, I I actually prepared another uh, special fish related song for you and then excellent uh, so it I'd like to be
3: under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade
2: Octopus's Garden. I like that one. It's such an upbeat song. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have already almost come to the end of the program, um, but Indeed, time that's, flies. I was going to say, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> time flies, but that still leaves us with an exciting outlook of what's coming next. Um, next week, of course, we are continuing with the topic of peace and protest, but we actually have something special planned because we, are, we aren't going to looking at peace in a traditional sense, but we're going to take a creative perspective on peace in a sense of what it means to be at peace with oneself. So, sure.
1: Well, I think that's also interesting, isn't it, Tom? Because there's inner and outer peace. So we've been focusing a lot on the outer peace, but I think it's nice also to think about the inner peace, especially now in Corona, people are feeling a little bit stressed. It's not the easiest time.
2: Yeah, and I think one thing that, that might even contribute to that is if you want to be uh, a creator of, of peace or you want to create peace for other people, let's say externally, I think you do need a certain resilience or strength within yourself. True. And I think that is not possible without being somewhat at peace or confident in, in your own capabilities.
1: Absolutely. So the two the two are related. We're also going to hear about a fascinating project that actually involves the reintroduction of canals into The Hague. Uh, so some of you may have noticed that The Hague is not blessed with as many lovely grachten as Amsterdam, but uh, the plan with this particular project is to reintroduce at least some of the canals that were filled in um, just after the war. Uh, in the Hague and I'm going to be speaking with a lady who's involved with that and there's also a documentary film which they've been working on which they're hoping to release and we will of course share that link with you as well so you can actually hopefully see what it would look like.
2: I was going to say that's one of the things I look forward to most is sort of seeing the, the picturesque things of, of bringing the canals back and yeah um, i'm sure i'm sure that we'll share those on the instagram as well if we manage to get i mean are there going to be photos of what it will look like or what it has looked like?
1: well they do she did show me when i first spoke with her they have a, a sort of an architect's uh, book and these they have prepared all kinds of visualizations so i'm hoping that we can get some of those from her so yeah please remember to check on our instagram facebook pages basically for more information about any aspect of tonight's program, as always.
2: Yeah, so it's a bit of an, uh, you might get an exclusive of what the canals might look like by following us on all the social medias. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in and please tune in again next week on 92.0 for more fun, frolics and some interesting pieces of news right here in the city of peace and justice.